unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. Welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today? I'm good, Nathan. How are you? I'm good. I need a little bit of a wake up. I missed my coffee this morning. I stayed up late last night. And so I'm hoping that you can bring some exciting information to get my brain rattling and and stimulated and going this morning. Oh, are you ever going to be excited by today's show? Because we're returning to the Old Masters series. And we're going to do it with a guy I call the godfather of creativity, Alex Osborne. Now, you may never have heard of him, but he's best known for inventing brainstorming, which was first used at his advertising agency, BBDO, and the O was for him, Osborne. But he's done a lot more than that. For example, in 1954, he co-founded the Creative Education Foundation, and he's written a number of books. The best-known one was the bestseller, Your Creative Power, published in 1940, However, a lesser-known book, Wake Up Your Mind, 101 Ways to Develop Your Creativeness, from 1952, is what we're going to use today to get into some really interesting, practical ideas about creativity and writing copy. We've got a lot to cover, but let's start with this highly creative idea. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. Most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. Let's start by going over a few things about creativity as we define it before we dive into what Alex Osborne has to say. First of all, Creativity is not coming up with harebrained ideas like lizards that play golf to sell life insurance, right? Not in the way we're talking about today. Creativity for our purposes is finding better ways to get a prospect excited about and committed to buying what you're selling. No lizards required or desired. Second, in his book, Osborne says something dear to my heart. Schools teach the wrong things for creativity. Oh, I like that so much. I'm going to say it again. Schools teach the wrong things for creativity. This was back in the day. The book was published in 1952. And I don't know what schools teach these days. But if, as I've heard rumors, the main purpose of school, past all of the political culture war woke stuff, The main purpose of school is to teach kids how to score high on standardized tests so they can get into a platinum-level college. That works against developing creative abilities. So Osborne says someone named Burdett Ross Buckingham wrote a book in 1926 called Research for Teachers. And Osborne says ever since that book came out, and I quote, Educators have leaned increasingly on statistics. This has led to the accumulation of facts and the deprecation of the generation of ideas. He goes on, and listen to this, it's short but important. 
creativity necessarily lacks exactness. So exactness is something you can test. Something that's not exact is kind of hard to test. It's subjective. Okay, so one of the guiding questions of schools is, can it be tested? And Osborne says that this question gets in the way of schools developing creativity skills. That is, since creativity is not exact, you can't test or measure it. All right, so a little more about that science, technology, engineering, and math. They're survival skills in the jobs economy these days. All right, I don't want to take away from that. But remember that the people who built the companies that hire all the scientists, technologists, engineers, and mathematicians had far greater imaginations than most of their employees. That is, they had much better practical creativity skills, among other things, than your average bear. So, something to think about. The third thing that's really important before we get into these seven steps of creativity, it's that in real life, creativity may not work this way exactly, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And Osborne says so in the book. Sometimes you take these steps out of order. Sometimes you don't take all of them. Sometimes you take the same one more than once. He writes, the more I study and practice creativity, the surer I feel that its process is necessarily a stop-and-go, catch-as-catch-can, ring-around-the-rosy. The more I doubt whether it can ever be exact enough to rate as scientific. Osborne says, the most we can honestly say is it involves some or all of these phases. I would have to agree there's no set formula for creativity, but knowing these seven steps will put you in a better place to come up with profitable creative ideas than not knowing them at all. And one more thing, <clears throat> Osborne has an unusual comment in this book about the importance of putting mental and emotional effort into creativity. He says, writers recognize rhythms of creativity as ups and downs of their power to produce. Since each person's talent is the same from day to day, those cycles must be solely cycles of energy, a fact which helps pr prove how dependent upon our drive upon our drive, creativity can be. So, Nathan, before we jump into these seven steps, what say you? I'm going to ask you a question because this is a topic that you like to return to. And in writing, we've got a couple of different styles. One of them is creative writing. Is, I guess, the problem that we're trying to solve here, why is creativity important to copywriting in the first place? Sure. So let's say you've got an ad and it's going to the same market of people and you're getting um, maybe a 3x uh, return on ad spend. And then it starts to drop down to two and then to one and a half. And you know, man, I've, I've got to do something. That's where creativity comes in. Creativity does does not mean okay, it's time to bring in a golf-playing lizard. Creativity means, okay, how can I rearrange, reimagine, tweak this ad to get it back to three times three ROAS again? And I love it because 
when that happens, when you start seeing an ad stop performing, one of the first things that they ask you is, hey, can we get some new creative? Yeah. I mean, I've always hated that they call what we do creative because that's it just can lead in the wrong, as we see it does, lead in the wrong direction so often. But but yeah, I mean, at big publishers that use direct mail on a, or direct response on the internet, large scale, they talk about a relead. It's the same idea. It's refreshing a sales letter that basically works, but you've got to find a different way in for the people that the current way in isn't working for. So that's why it's important. And it's a great question. Appreciate it. All right. Let's jump into it. All right. So step seven steps. Step one, orientation, picking out and pointing up the problem. That's those are Osborne's words. And let me talk about this. I remember when I was a reporter, it was many, many years ago, I saw this article in the Wall Street Journal about big law firms. And there was this chart and it showed one of the most important jobs for senior lawyers was to take a big problem and break it into smaller problems. And at the time, I thought this was ridiculous. What a cushy job they had, I thought. There's nothing to it, nothing, you know, just a big bluff. But the, here's the thing. My conception at that stage of life, my conception of a problem in those days was figuring out a lead for a news story with a single goal of telling a reader what happened in an accurate and interesting way. And then having a liquid lunch. I mean, little did I realize I was the one with the cushy job. A lawyer, like a copywriter, has some tough decisions to make when defining a problem or breaking down a problem. The outcome you're looking for is a lot tougher to get, whether you're a lawyer or a copywriter. For a lawyer, the outcome might be to win a case in court or to get a contract together to protect your client. For copywriters, the outcome is usually to get and keep attention and to get a result. And this is one of the few ways lawyers and copywriters have a similar job, which is persuasion. And that's hard to do sometimes. So this step is more important and more difficult than it might appear at first glance. And I'll give you a couple of real life examples of identifying the problem, the real problem. I was working with a client last week, mentoring client. He was stuck on how to start a video script for a video that was going to be for lead generation. He'd been working on it for a while. And his biggest obstacle was he couldn't figure out what problem he could promise to solve in the opening of the script. So we started talking, and once we started talking, and as he was explaining it to me, a clear and vivid description of the problem pretty much popped out of his mouth, and he heard it. He realized it, and I helped him put it in the right language to start off the video script, and from there, the copy pretty much organized itself. As you can see from that example, this is why getting a clear fix on the problem can make such a difference. And I'll give you another example where I was the writer rather than the coach. Also happened just last week. I was having trouble starting a chapter on a book I'm writing, and I didn't know why. And my book coach helped me tease out three things I was trying to do all at once, which of course never works. So as soon as I had those things defined, the problem was solved, I could put them in order and get on with the opening of the chapter. So to come to sum this all up, 
getting clear on the problem is sometimes half the battle in any copy job. And the problem might be like what we've talked about. It might be the focus, it might be the lead, it might be the big idea, it might be the headline. Nathan, do you have any thoughts about identifying the problem as the start of the creative process? I'm just reminded, we kind of touched on this a couple of weeks back when we were talking about a big reason people don't take action isn't just because they don't have a clear understanding of the solution. Sometimes it's because they don't have a clear understanding of the problem. And so, yeah, not having a clear understanding, not having a good breakdown of what the problem is, it prevents the prospect from taking action, but it also prevents the copywriter from being able to clearly communicate the value of whatever it is that we're selling. Yeah, that's, thank you. That's why I want to spend so much time on this particular step because this is one where people kind of slough off a little bit and it's so important. Can't really shouldn't do that. Okay. So let's get to step two. They're important, but we don't need to spend as much time on each one. Step two is preparation, gathering material relevant to the problem. This is basically research. We've talked about research on this show before. Usually more research, the better. For a copywriter, when you're talking about material relevant to the problem, the problem is almost always making copy work. There can be other problems like compliance or not violating trademarks or copyright or lies given to you by chat GPT that you need to correct. But usually when it comes to preparation, you just need info to make the copy work. Since we were talking about these steps not always taking place in the same order, this one's a classic example. Very often you will do lots of research, especially customer research, before you settle on the problem your copy is about to solve. Again, there's no fixed way to do this. It always depends on the circumstances. We've talked about this, just the importance of doing that prep work, laying everything out, getting everything ready to go. And a lot of times when you do that process, then stuff just leaps out at you. If you've taken the time to get everything organized first and kind of like let it percolate in your brain for a little bit, then all of a sudden stuff just starts leaping out of you that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It sometimes seems like a waste of time because you want to get right to the writing, but man, this will, this will lay out the map in front of you sometimes. You're right. Hey, let me ask you something. How would you like a complete copywriting course packed into a $10 Kindle book? Yeah? Then let me invite you to try Breakthrough Copywriting. It's only $10 and it's available now on Amazon as a Kindle. Breakthrough Copywriting was originally a $5,000 live seminar I held in Las Vegas. People flew in from all over the world to attend Breakthrough Copywriting. This Kindle book by the same name is a complete version of my four presentations at the seminar. If you would like to dig into copywriting basics or refresh the knowledge you already have, then you'll really like Breakthrough Copywriting. A-listers like John Carlton, Joe Sugarman, and Bob Bly give this book an A+, and you can read the reviews right on the Amazon site. This episode of the Copywriters Podcast is sponsored by Breakthrough Copywriting. Check this book out at Amazon.com today. And now, back to the Copywriters Podcast program, already in progress. Step three is analysis, which Osborne defines as breaking down the relevant material. One of the most frustrating things for me when I'm writing is having all this research, 
but having no quick way to find and access what I'm looking for. So doing this step could reduce or eliminate that frustration. It could be categorizing or indexing a lot of the research you've already done. Sometimes I'll put together an index or mind map. I know that million dollar Mike Morgan, who has been on the show a couple times and is a former mentoring client of mine, has taken years to perfect a technique to organize all his research on a Word doc or a Google doc, sometimes a hundred pages or more, so he can get ready access to it. Since his copy needs to have lots of footnotes for review by the in-house lawyers, the indexing helps put him helps him put in his footnotes a lot more quickly without breaking flow or once he starts writing. Research isn't worth very much until you've made sense out of what you've found before you start using it. That's what this step is about. I had a conversation one time with Joe Schriefer, and we went through his process, and he does something similar, but he does it with Post-it notes. And so he gets all of his points, and he puts them on Post-it notes, and he comes up with all of his objections and how he would handle those objections, and he lays them out on Post-it notes. And then he goes through on a wall or on a door and goes from the top to the bottom and reorganizes the post-it notes. So he does something very similar, but in a kind of an old school style of way. And when he explained how it worked to me, I was like, wow, that is freaking amazing. Yes, I remember that now Now that you're talking about it. Joe was one of a kind, quite a guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, step four, hypothesis, piling up alternatives by way of tentative ideas. So that language is a little opaque to me, but what he's saying is trying different scenarios, looking at different iterations, different versions. And this is kind of like brainstorming. But one thing I want to point out is this is step four. That means three things, identifying the problem, breaking down the problem, doing research, all get done first. And at least in this version, I think it's a better idea to do what I call informed brainstorming than what I call wild ass brainstorming. <laughs> wild ass brainstorming is throwing a bunch of random stuff up against the wall to see what sticks. Informed brainstorming is starting from a base of real world knowledge. Here's an example of informed brainstorming. Yesterday I was talking with a client who had gotten a sudden nasty surprise from a big ad network and his company needed to do some rapid reframing of their whole marketing approach. We went through ideas for about an hour and in this process discovered his company already had a completely different campaign underway that would not be affected by the ad network problem. He could scale that different approach up immediately while he was working on refaming other things so there'd be no interruption of business. Now, this is a 2020 hindsight hindsight kind of a discovery. I mean, it's perfectly obvious after the fact, but when we started the call, he was a little nervous and this solution was completely invisible at that time. Our whole experience proved the value of piling up alternatives by way of tentative ideas. In other words, well, will this work? Well, suppose we did it this way. Well, hey, David, we're actually doing this. Boom. We're doing this right now. And, and that was that was what led to, but it wouldn't have come up first because we just weren't thinking that way. So that's why it's important to put a lot of energy and focus into the process of trying out different ideas. Other ways copywriters can use this step is to try out different outlines, structures, big ideas on the macro level, 
and try out different headlines and leads on the micro level. Just bring anything to mind for you? Yeah, so I've been doing a lot of video ads lately, and something that I've run into is a lot of times we'll have two or three variations of the ad, and it'll be the same ad all the way through. We'll just be testing a different hook or a different call to action at the end. So when I'm looking at Adobe Premiere, I see the same ad three different times, but there's just one layer here has this hook, one layer here has this other hook. And so having those different variations ready to go definitely helps. Yeah, really good point. Really good tip for anyone else who's doing the same thing you're doing. Okay, step six, synthesis, putting the pieces together. So this step's pretty straightforward uh, with copy. It's writing. By now, you've probably settled on an outline or a direction, and it's just a matter of following the outline and sitting down and writing your piece. The key thing is, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, do this long enough ahead of your deadline so that you can let your brain cool off a little and go to step seven, which is verification. And once again, you'll do better with this step if you sleep on your project before you do it. Take a little distance from your work, and after his head has cooled down a bit, that always sets you up better to review and rewrite if need be. Nathan, any thoughts on this step before I recap? I'm going to go back to music. Me and you both have done a lot of music in our past, and one thing that I have learned is you get ear fatigue. If you're in the studio all day, you start losing the ability to hear certain tones. You start losing the ability to pick certain things out and taking that break, letting your ears have a break, maybe taking the master CD and going and listening to it on a different set of speakers in a different setting in your car versus the studio monitors, taking a chance to step back and get rid of that fatigue because your brain can get the fatigue, your eyes can get the fatigue, your ears can get the fatigue. So taking a moment to step back and let it kind of rest and then come back to it before you say, okay, this is the final version. So powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do a recap, but then I got one more thing. So here are the steps and remember it's good to know them, but they're guidelines and not rules. And you may use some of them or not all of them. And they're not always in this order. I know that's really helpful, but (laughs) (laughs) it is one orientation, pick out and, pointing up the problem, two, preparation, gathering material relevant to the problem, step three, analysis, breaking down the relevant material, step four, hypothesis, piling up alternatives by way of tentative ideas, five, incubation, letting up in order to invite illumination, six, synthesis, putting the pieces together, and seven, verification, judging the resultant ideas. All right, finally, here's a creativity tip, something you can do from Osborne. He says, reading provides far better creative exercise when we make notes as we go. And you might say, well, duh. But Osborne mentions a few things that are really worth thinking about, involving habits of creative people. Mentions Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw. So he'd get a book and... He'd look at the book, he wouldn't open it. And he'd outline the whole book before he even opened it and started reading. And then after he finished the book, he would look at his outline. Most of the time he decided he did a better job than the author did. Mm. 
Arrogant son of a bitch. Okay. <laughs> Mark Twain would read books over and over again and make notes on the pages each time. And Osborne reports Bruce Barton, one of the partners in BBDO, he's one of the Bs. Benton was the other one. Bruce Barton would make notes on blank pages of books, flyleaf it's called, along with the number of the page that the note referred to. So he was creating a custom index for himself of the best ideas inside the book. What well, Now, as I was putting the podcast together, I came across this tweet from Andrew Huberman, who is my favorite neuroscientist on Twitter and YouTube these days. Huberman has a great podcast, offers a lot of good advice and resources for improving your health and mental strength. This is what he tweeted. The value of reading and writing things down that we read or hear cannot be overstated. Two expert guests who specialize in speech and memory on the Huberman Lab podcast explain that when we read or listen something and then write down key aspects, takeaways by hand, not by typing, but by hand, it engages our motor control centers in ways that deeply embed the information to our memory. Taking notes, however cursory, turns out to be the best way to remember information later. Oh, wow, that's a mouthful, but it's important. I decided to translate it into plain English, Franklin Roosevelt style. When you write stuff down, it goes straight into your muscle memory. And we're all about muscle memory here in Copywriters Podcast. The tweet by Huberman confirms a technique I developed for my advanced mentoring clients. It involves writing things down from books and reviewing them in a very specific way. Some of my clients have become superstar copywriters, and while they deserve most of the credit for that, I have to think this intensive exercise helped. So I put a link at the bottom of the show notes to this book, Wake Up Your Mind. It's out of print, but you can get a copy if you really want one. 100 Ways to Develop Creativeness. And Nathan, any thoughts before we go? Just on that last point, I've always found it to be true. Taking notes, physical notes, writing them down on a piece of paper always helps me understand and work through things better, get a better grip of what it is that I'm learning. So I would say out of all of these, that's actually my favorite one because that's where me really solidifying something usually comes from is when I take that last step of actually writing stuff down. Yeah, you know, that reminds me, another client who I haven't even, I mean, I'm keeping them anonymous because I value their privacy, but another client is very cerebral, and he recently started writing his first draft physically on paper with a pen, and it's just, it's changed his world, mm -hmm. it, and, and his copy's gotten a lot better, Yeah, and it's making a lot of money, too. So, I mean, we could talk about the mind-body connection and physical, we could, but... Basically, we've summed it up. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll second that. Also, scripting out my copy on a piece of paper, saying, okay, here's my headline. Here's the point I'm going to get across. Here's my hook. Going through and doing that also makes writing copies so much easier for me. I don't know. I don't know if I, I haven't heard very many people talk about the importance of it. So maybe I always kind of thought maybe I was just kind of the oddball. But it sounds like some of the master copywriters do the same thing. But Nathan, papyrus was invented in ancient Egypt. That's so old school. 
<laughs> That's true. But man, sometimes the old stuff is it's stuck around for a reason. There's a reason it's lasted that long, huh? Absolutely. All right, David, another fantastic episode. If you're listening to this and you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you head over to copywriterspodcast.com and catch more episodes there. While you're there, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And until next time, we will catch you later. Catch you later. Hey, did you enjoy today's show? Want to help get it into the ears of more listeners? Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.